Welcome everyone to our NCAA social series. I'm Andy Katz. This is episode number 25. I'm pleased to be joined as I have been almost every week by Dr. Brian Hainline, the NCAA chief medical officer. And for this week's edition, I'm joined by Dr. Aaron Bagish, a cardiologist at Mass General in Boston, also an advisor to a number of teams and universities uh, in the Boston area, including Harvard, as you see there on your screen, the Boston Marathon, the Patriots. Uh, so we're going to get to discussing myocarditis and as it relates to COVID-19 here just in a moment. But first, uh, Dr. Hainline, I just want you to address an extension and expansion to the original NCAA coronavirus advisory panel that was announced earlier this week. What does that mean? Yeah, thanks for that, Andy. So we originally had this advisory panel was primarily external individuals. Only one person was from the membership and they were really groups of experts in infectious disease, public health and, uh, and spectator, uh, uh, spectator issues when it comes to security. But what had happened organically as the process went on is we ended up working very extensively with another working group from the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. We worked really collaboratively with the Autonomy 5 Advisory Medical Group, then our own internal committee on competitive safeguards, and the National Medical Association, a medical association primarily of, of black physicians. And so when we thought about really moving into the next phase, that is winter and spring championships, we brought all of these groups together and also reached out more so to the membership as well. So I think this is a, a much more balanced membership-based group that, that continues to have leading experts in, in all of these important areas. And, and what we're going to be focusing on is, is continuing to provide uh, guidance to the membership. We'll continue to report out to the various governance body of the NCAA. And, and it's, it's, it's really just an exciting new chapter and, and really a formalization of what had kind of developed organically. All right, so I wanna now shift to myocarditis because that has been uh, certainly in the news lately as it relates to COVID-19. So let's first uh, deal with the definition, Dr. Bagish. What is it? So first, let me just take a minute to thank you, Andy, Brian, and everyone at the NCAA for including me in this chat tonight. Looking forward to this discussion. There's obviously a lot to talk about. So myocarditis, when you think about the word and break it into its principal components, it tells you everything you need to know. Myo is muscle heart is heart and itis is inflammation. So myocarditis is a, a syndrome in which the heart muscle gets inflamed with a, a number of things that come along with that. So one thing that Dr. Hainline and I talked about last week was that uh, this has been around for a while, uh, at least this, you know, everyone has known about this for quite some time, not just related to this coronavirus. Um, so if you can give me a little more history of that, that we were discussing that it's just in the news now because obviously we're in the middle of a global pandemic, but what's the history of, of knowing about myocarditis? Yeah, you're spot on. Myocarditis is not new. This is something that heart doctors have dealt with and taken care of for, for, for decades. It's one of, the, one of the causes of advanced, very sick heart failure that we see in hospitalized patients. But probably more relevant to our discussion today is the fact that it is on the list of things that can kill otherwise young, healthy people. Um, very important literature from the military now dating back 15, 20 years established myocarditis as one of the more common causes of sudden death among active servicemen. And we've seen the same thing play out in autopsy series of, of competitive athletes, whether they be collegiate athletes, high school athletes, or older folks. How curable is it? Uh, it 
it is not something that we have a direct treatment for, but the good news with myocarditis is that in most cases, uh, particularly in otherwise young healthy people, the tincture of time and simply allowing the heart muscle to recover, which requires abstinence from high level exercise, usually allows the condition to cure itself on its own. So Dr. Hainline, um, you know, I wanna bring you back to what we talked about last week on this topic. Um, you've known about it, obviously those in the medical profession, certainly that focus on cardiology are well-versed in this. Um, you know, I'm curious just how surprised were you that it emerged so prevalent in the conversation as it relates to athletics over the last couple of weeks? Wendy, it was both a surprise and not a surprise. I mean, the surprise was when, you know, it got really prominent news and, and you know, we found out that individuals were, were dying of myocarditis. And, and I think it's just be, because of, there's been such a focus and a spotlight on COVID-19 that, that these deaths, whether, whether or not it represented an anomaly or, or, or that it actually is, uh, more prevalent in, in, in this particular coronavirus is, isn't clear. But the non-surprising part is that, yeah, I mean, as, as sports medicine physicians, we've known for a very long time that if you have a symptomatic viral syndrome, and so this is where COVID might be different because it may exist in asymptomatic, and we, we don't know for other viruses, but we always told athletes, if you're symptomatic with a viral syndrome, you should be shut down. You're not working out you're not competing. So, so that's the non-surprising part of it. But I think another important element to bring in is, is the difference between cardiology and, and sports cardiology. It's sort of the difference between neurology, I'm a neurologist, and, and sports neurology. Both of them are relatively new established fields. I, I think the, the American College of Cardiology started a sports cardiology section about 10 years ago. That was the same time the, the American Academy of Neurology did that for concussion. And so this is also really a very specialized discussion about what's different when something impacts athletes versus those who are in the general population. And that's something Dr. Baggers knows a lot more about than I do, but it's another very interesting twist to this conversation. You know, Dr. Baggers, testing is obviously the word of the day with this virus, but I wanna go back, really you could go back years to decades on EKG and, and, and cardiac testing. And obviously some universities have more access to this than others. You know, in the post Hank Gathers era, um, it, there seemed to be more of an emphasis on, you know, checking to make sure before either you do compete, if you suddenly are ill, as Dr. Hainline was talking about, making sure that your heart is healthy, that you don't have an underlying heart condition. How much have you seen since you work in the athletic space, both collegiate and professionally, and even with the Boston Marathon, you know, people, uh, you know, people like me that have run it, I mean, just, you know, regular people, uh, where that goes unchecked, their heart health sometimes is not part of their yearly or every couple of year routine in terms of where your heart health is so that you don't and are not subject to something like this. Well, let me just say that we could talk all day about cardiac screening and, and the, the challenges that surround that. Um, and I also say that I think COVID-19 has exacerbated far more, far more problems than it's created and cardiac screening is a good example. It's, there's never been a consensus on how best to do it. The practices vary as a function of the different cohorts of athletes we're talking about. Certainly professional and many collegiate athletes get a lot of screening and that can be viewed as a good thing, but certainly has some downsides. But you, know, you bring up something like the Boston Marathon where when we have that race and hopefully it will come back someday soon, we don't have the capacity to screen people. We really leave it up to them. 
But I want to emphasize that screening has always been controversial and it has never been more controversial than now based on this concern about COVID-19 complications. Why is, why is there so much controversy on that? Well, let me, um, let me back up and make one important point. Um, our experience with myocarditis and COVID-19 has emerged exclusively from the care of hospitalized patients, right? We, we realized early on in the pandemic that older, sicker people that end up in the hospital um, had a relatively high incidence of myocarditis, and this actually contributed to why people got very sick and died. So the concern, which at this point is still largely theoretical, is that younger, healthier people in the community would be at risk for cardiac complications that would be manifest during their return to sports. Right now, we have no good data to prove that that's the case, so we're operating out of caution and out of a, a hypothesis, okay? So what that means is that we don't really understand the prevalence of disease, and without an understanding of prevalence, the use of screening techniques is a very, very dirty thing. And I mean that because all screening techniques, their accuracy depends upon pretest probability and prevalence, which sound like complicated words, but they're not really that challenging for the listener to digest. Dr. Einlein, I think you want to jump in. Go ahead. Yeah, just to, to uh, further the discussion. So, um, you know, Aaron talks about how we could, we could spend all day talking about screening and so forth. Well, well in fact, Aaron and, and myself and a number of uh, sports cardiology specialists and sports management specialists, we spent two days talking about this several years ago. And, and it was even difficult to come to a consensus about electrocardiogram screening because, you know, the, the EKG of an athlete, uh, an elite athlete, may be different than, than a, a, a common person, and, and you have to know how to interpret that. And, and one of the things now, and, and I'd love to hear Aaron's thought about this, is that some people are saying, well, right away, let's move to something called a cardiac MRI. And, and so why would we move to a cardiac MRI and not just think about, okay, what do we really know about this condition and how do we first approach it clinically? And so here's a potential danger of a cardiac MRI. So we know that lumbar spine MRIs are done all the time. I'm certain if we did a spinal MRI in every single collegiate athlete, that 40% of them would be abnormal and considerably abnormal. Enough for some people to say this person should have surgery. And so, so again, it's, it's the point that, that Aaron is making about screening. It, it, it can't be overemphasized. We really have to be painstakingly uh, thorough about how we're going to go about any screening program. Yeah, I mean, we learned a very important lesson 10, 15 years ago when we started studying the, the use of ECG in the screening context. And that was that until we really knew what was normal for the athlete, that this technique um, caused more harm than it did good. And the, the value of that lesson was that many of us spent a lot of time and energy studying athletes and, and defining what, what constitutes the normal athlete ECG. And with that in hand, the ECG performs quite well in contemporary screening settings. That type of normative data, and what I mean by that is what really constitutes normal for a cohort of healthy athletes for the cardiac MRI simply does not exist. And if we start doing MRIs on a, on a widespread basis and looking for anything that might deviate from the population reference standards, which would really derive from non-athletic people, we're going to find ourselves in the same situation we did with athletes where things are misinterpreted as being clinically relevant. And that's going to end up doing more harm than good. So Dr. Bagish, I just want to put some practical aspect to this. Athletes that have tested positive before they return to play, um, regardless of the level that you are in Division One, and we'll see if this happens 
when Division two and three resume at some point. Um, how much should those athletes uh, that have had COVID-19, have recovered, be checked with an EKG or any other heart, um, you know, checkup, if you will, uh, before they're allowed back on the field of play? Yeah, it's a great question. Let me preface my answer by saying this is a rapidly evolving field. And as we get more data, I, I suspect we'll, we'll have a more nuanced answer. But as it stands now, my answer is based on two things. One, my opinion, having thought through this in detail, and two, now a fair bit of, uh, of experience in the trenches at both the professional and the collegiate level, seeing what we're seeing. Um, as you're probably well aware, uh, a group of colleagues and I from the American College of Cardiology put out a document with an algorithm addressing this question. And we're about to, to change that slightly. But the bottom line is that athletes that have asymptomatic or mild disease, as defined by symptoms literally of the neck and above, so loss of taste, loss of smell, nasal congestion, cough, that are not sicker than that and recover fully, do not need more pre-participation screening than they would get in, in the normal pre-COVID environment. The high yield screening and the people that should have the echoes and the cardiac troponin blood tests, and in some cases, even MRIs, are the ones that had moderate or more severe COVID infection. These are people that were bedridden with fever, myalgias, chest symptoms. Absolutely, if they were hospitalized, they need to be extensively evaluated. But the vast majority of athletes that we're seeing come back now either didn't know they had disease or were just sick with mild symptoms for a couple of days. And we're just not finding pathology that matters in those people. All right, um, that's the basic science of it. What about the cost aspect at the professional level? Um, and I know you deal with uh, pro athletes as well. I mean, um, what do you think the chances are that at the pro level, they would look to still just for liability and all that, and just to be ultra safe, test any athlete that comes back in to play who previously had COVID? Well, I can only speak for the pro organizations that I've been working with, which include um, the NFL, NHL, and to some degree, uh, soccer, so, as I'm a cardiologist for US soccer. There's been, a, I think, a relatively responsible and, um, and, and balanced approach whereby there hasn't been the push to do more screening than what we would do in a normal year in that group of athletes that were asymptomatic or mildly ill. Certainly the pros have the money to do more, but I think the, the understanding is that for reasons we talked about earlier, doing more advanced testing without really knowing what you're gonna do with the information because you simply don't know what normal is, is gonna end up causing more harm than good. So Dr. Hanley, I want you to comment on this first and then Dr. Baggish, if you could on the back end. Um, there's been a lot of discussion on this, uh, on this topic and what percentage of athletes have it, don't have it. Um, some have had to walk back from their comments. Um, how much of a slippery slope are we on here when you know, certain medical professionals or those that interpret it you know, come out with sort of a headline and it's almost like you know, suddenly everyone you know, jumps back from it and reacts and then they, well, wait a minute, that's not exactly what I meant, but that information's already out there. Um, how much do we really have to be so careful about what specific information we're out, is put out with myocarditis dealing during this, um, this pandemic? Dr. Hamline first. Well, Andy, I think we always have to be careful and whether it's uh, myocarditis or, or you know, sometimes neurological manifestations of COVID or, or, or what have you, you know, you, whenever you have a new disease and, and there's a, you know, such a spotlight put on it, you're gonna hit all sorts of headlines. And one of the difficulties with COVID, I mean, it's been one of the great things, there's been such a spotlight and such great research, but a lot of the research 
or the clinical publications haven't gone through the same peer-reviewed vetting process that we used to do because we want to get the information out right away. And sometimes that leads to a study that maybe is embedded in the same way, or maybe you have a couple of case reports. And then, you know, the way news goes these days, that becomes the headlines. And then without anyone going to the original source, it becomes reproduced 10, times over. And so the, that's why what, the way the NCA uh, approached it. So we actually worked with the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, the American College of Cardiology, and we had a working group that was specifically addressing myocarditis, and we did that actually a few months ago. And the recommendations from that working group, they have evolved as we've learned more. And I think even after uh, uh, you know, tonight's social series, they'll, they'll evolve even more. And, and, and so it's really you taking a balanced approach with the experts, and you can't necessarily make a, a, a data-driven decision, but you should at least make a consensus-driven decision that, that is really with the scientists and clinicians who are at the ground level. Yeah, I'll also add just anecdotally, um, the myocarditis story um, upped in anti by an, by an order of magnitude a few weeks ago after a study was, was published out of Germany in which 100 people uh, who had suffered COVID infection uh, underwent cardiac MRIs during their recovery period. And a, a fair number of them went on to have, again, abnormalities on, on their MRIs, which concerned the investigators. This study um, generated a tremendous amount of hoopla here in the States, uh, and it was um, a social media craze for a period of time, but in a kind of a responsible step back and actually appraisal of the science, that study has almost nothing to do with the cohort of young competitive athletes that we're talking about at the NCAA level. So again, back to your question, Andy, I think we need to be very careful about overreacting uh, and really keep an open mind until we have the science and the population that we're talking about which are young, otherwise healthy people between the ages of 18 and 30, and know not only what their hearts look like by an imaging test, but also what that means as we follow them over time to see if bad things happen to them. We don't have the science to be anything more than guessers. So Dr. Bagish, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but um, you know, as in anything in medicine, there are multiple opinions. There can be the same set of facts, and, it, and we've talked about this last couple weeks on our show here, uh, yet, Two different doctors, two different panels can have various risk tolerances related to those set of facts. We've got some conferences playing college football, others not. Um, no fall sports in the majority of conferences, divisions one, two, and three. Some in those conferences are competing. We're waiting to see what's going to happen, hopefully, with the winter and spring sports. You know, hopefully those will, will, will be able to be played. Where's your threshold, if you will, of your comfort level of putting high-level collegiate athletes on the field of play at this point? Yeah, it's a great question. So a couple of points to be made. First, um, I do not believe that cardiac concerns about myocarditis in student athletes should be a reason to, college, to cancel college sports. The algorithms we put into place, I firmly believe, are going to identify the, the high-risk athletes that should be restricted, and that should be an individual decision among team physicians, sports cardiologists, and the athlete who is a patient. The decision to play football or other collegiate sports right now um, is much more, in my opinion, about the ability to contain transmission of this virus as a public health issue rather than a cardiology issue. And so these decisions need to be made based on local resources, need to be made on local disease prevalence. And this is something that varies tremendously across the country, but I do not want people to come away from this discussion thinking that cardiac concerns should be the primary driver of canceling sports right now. 
Well, I appreciate that optimism, Dr. Bagish. Um, before we go here, Dr. Hainline, uh, I like my weekly check on testing. Um, and I'm just curious from your vantage point, how much closer are we from last week to this week about getting to you know, more of those point of care tests um, that are gonna help speed up this process where we can know who has it and who doesn't in a matter of hours or minutes versus days? I, I, that's the one point where I uh, continue to get more optimistic as, as time passes. So, uh, you know, we spoke about saliva direct and, and I, I think as laboratories across the country that they decide they wanna work uh, with this, it's not a difficult methodology. Um, that, that certainly can continue to expand. And, and, and as we had stated at University of Illinois, they can run 10,000 tests a day and, and they get the results back that day. You know, there was that great announcement with the PAC-12 and, and, and using the antigen test, and there's going to be other antigen tests that are going to be widely available. And so the, the good news about this is that, that the infrastructure possibilities for doing point-of-care tests or very rapid turnaround tests using other methodologies, that's going to expand rapidly. And even if the sensitivity of these tests are you know closer to 90% and, and not closer to 100%, when we're doing them on a very regular basis, it's gonna be from a mathematical probability point of view, we're gonna miss very, very few people. And, and so, yeah, the optimism is, is, is increasing and I think that's gonna be a great tool to have as we approach our winter sports. So Dr. Bagish, I wanna give you the last word, not just about cardiology, but just in general, you're at um, one of the best hospitals in the world uh, at Mass General. I'm actually from Newton, so I know it well. Um, you know, what's your level right now of, of where we are uh, within the pandemic? Um, you're, you're on the ground there at Mass General. Are we at least heading in a better direction uh, overall? I'm just, I don't want to once get pretty, I just would like to hear your thoughts on that real quickly since you're at such a, uh, you know, a, a hospital with the, you know, the leading edge in so many aspects of medicine. Yeah, Andy, I, you know, I feel like we are at a very tenuous junction in this journey. Um, a, a lot has gotten better over the past three or four months, and that's not been by accident. That's been because people have done the right thing and the medical community has stepped up. Um, what I can't predict is how this next, next chapter will be written. I think not just with the resumption of, of school and college and university, but also with the broader population trying hard to emerge from this crisis. Um, I am concerned that if we do so in a cavalier fashion without an appreciation for how serious this illness is, that we'll set ourselves back. That being said, I, I try to remain the quintessential optimist and hopeful that we're, we will continue to see better days ahead in the very near future. I hope so. Hey, I got my flu shot. Everyone out there, get your flu shot as soon as possible. Hopefully we can mitigate the flu season this season. Um, Dr. Aaron Bagish from Mass General, leading cardiologist uh, in the country and dealing with athletics, not just at the collegiate, but also the professional level, certainly in the Boston area. Um, and Dr. Brian Hainline, the NCAA Chief Medical Officer. As always, appreciate your knowledge and uh, in informing us on the latest going on with everything, including the new expansion of the Coronavirus Medical Advisory Board. Uh, as always, you can go to ncaa.org slash social series where all 25 of our episodes are archived and you can see we've been following this from the beginning to where we are now, educating the public, not just the student athletes and the students, on what is happening with this dreadful disease. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll talk again next week.